From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We still don't know what caused the devastating Marshall Fire in Boulder County, but investigators early on said the blaze might have started on the property of a cult, which led the Denver Post to take a deep dive into the religious group's beliefs and operations. Twelve Tribes runs its businesses entirely on free labor from its members. When you are a member of the 12 tribes, you give up all of your personal belongings and assets. So if you have a house or a car, you would sign that over to them. Ex-members paint a picture of abuse and exploitation. Then an old photo inspires a Colorado Wonders question about petrified tree stumps. Why were they preserved goes back to a time in Colorado when there was actually a fair amount of volcanic action. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The cause of the Marshall Fire in Boulder County remains under investigation. Shortly after the December blaze, officials were looking into the possibility that it started on property that belongs to a cult called Twelve Tribes. That led reporter Shelley Bradbury of the Denver Post to do a deep dive into the group's beliefs and its businesses. Twelve Tribes has about 3,000 members nationwide. A warning, this conversation includes allegations and descriptions of child abuse. Shelley, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. How many people came forward wanting to talk about the Twelve Tribes, or, or did you have to do a lot of convincing? No, I didn't have to do much convincing. Actually, many people came forward on their own after our first story that said that the fire might have started around where the compound is. I received a bunch of emails and calls from former members who basically encouraged me to look more into the group and who were very enthusiastic about talking about their experiences inside when they were members of the cult. In the first part of your series, you describe allegations of child abuse from former members. What were some of the stories they told you? The stories of abuse that the members shared or the former members shared were pretty horrific. Most of it centered around physical discipline, which is a practice that the tribes uses uh, quite extensively. It's kind of the center of their child rearing philosophy which is spare the rod, ruin the child sort of thinking. And they actually use a physical um, wooden rod to hit children when they misbehave. They will usually strike the child on the back of the hands or the palm of their hands or sometimes on their feet. And the idea is that they're showing love and they're disciplining out of the goodness of their heart. But for some of these children, the hitting escalated to pretty significant abuse. Was that documented in legal circles? Did that make it to court? You know, the 12 Tribes is a several decade old religious cult, um, and they have been in court many times. 
perhaps the most seminal moment was a 1984 raid in which in New England or Vermont, in which um, local law enforcement up there had heard about allegations of abuse and had gone out to their compound up there and taken all the kids on buses and taken them into court. And they intended to investigate the children and hold them and look at their, do a physical exam of their bodies and see if they had indications of abuse. The effort, however, was stopped when a judge out there decided that the search warrant was too broad and was unconstitutional. The children were sent back home within a few hours. So Nothing came out of that raid, but the allegations of child abuse have been persistent basically since the group started. Is inherently there a difficulty in reporting when largely the sources are formers, you know, people who uh, may have an axe to grind or who feel uh, in a very strongly negative way towards a particular religious organization? Yeah, I think it's important to couch that and to keep that in mind when I am talking with former members, particularly because former members are the ones who have left the group. So they obviously came to a point where they were no longer happy being there and they no longer felt like they should stay a part of it. I think one way that I sort of navigated through that is that all of the members I talked to told very similar stories. Hmm. And the fact that their allegations were so similar to me made them more believable um, because these were kids who were growing up in different parts of the country and over different times, like different years, different decades. And they all had the same basic account of the abuse that they experienced and the reasons for it. It's also very enshrined in the teachings of the 12 tribes. And I reviewed more than 400 pages of their internal religious texts, which very clearly um, say that abuse is necessary or that physical discipline is necessary. They would never call it abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that was saying, you know, it's never too young, basically, to start with physical discipline. And they gave the example in those religious texts of a child who wiggles away from a diaper change should be um, hit with a rod to encourage the child to not wiggle away from diaper changes. In, in the second part of the series, you write about 12 tribes' business ventures, uh, and you've already intimated that they're all over the country. Here in Colorado, there are eateries in Boulder and Manitou Springs. There are also construction firms. Uh, in general, how are these businesses run? Well, the 12 tribes runs its businesses entirely on free labor from its members, When you are a member of the 12 tribes, you give up all of your personal belongings and assets. So if you have a house or a car, you would sign that over to them. Well, that sounds lucrative itself. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And well, that's a whole other aspect of it. But so you sign over all your possessions and then you go and you live in the commune. And from that point on, all of your material needs are provided by the tribes, by the cults. So food clothing, uh, transportation, housing. And the way that the cult makes money is through their businesses, which are run on free member labor. So you work at a 12 tribes business, you live in a 12 tribes house, you eat 12 tribes food. And part of the reason why it's so difficult to leave is because members are so um, dependent on the 12 tribes. If they left, they'd literally have no food, no job, no housing, 
And a lot of them uh, cut off contact with their families, so they don't have a lot of outside support at that point either. Right. And you've spoken to some former members who try to recoup, for instance, wages, and they're told that's just not a thing with 12 tribes. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Shelley Bradbury of the Denver Post. She has written a series of stories about a sect, a cult in Boulder County, whose campus is quite close to where the ignition source of the Marshall Fire is believed to be. Why do you use the word cult, Shelley? Yeah, that's a good question. And we were really careful about that when we wrote this story because the 12 tribes members themselves really object to the label of cult. They address it in their teachings and on their website. And they say, we are not a cult. Um, However, in speaking with former members and also with some experts on cults, the group does meet the characteristics of a cult in that they have a very authoritarian leader um, or had, he just passed away. It has an all or nothing belief system. So uh, you're either in and good or you're out and bad. And it also exploits its members. And we see that through the labor exploitation, through the taking of people's assets and um, through the demand that they give their all to the cult. I don't imagine that if you leave the cult, you get your assets back. No, definitely you do not. And with folks I was talking to, that's been really difficult to rebuild their lives after leaving the cult because they do give up everything to join. You describe how 12 Tribes seems to recruit from vulnerable populations. Tell us how Christopher Walker came to be a part of the group. Yeah, so Christopher Walker is a um, young man who joined in Manitou Springs. He was at the time homeless, and I I spoke with his father, who said he also um, struggled with some mental illness. He joined the group, became a member, and lived with them for some time in Manitou Springs. Uh, His father was very complimentary of the 12 tribes because his son was fed and housed and had a job during his time there. He said that Christopher Walker gained 40 pounds. He was healthy and safe. And he eventually decided to leave the group when they tried to order him to move to a different compound. He decided to leave. So yeah, that's how he came into the group. Well, you you talk about reshuffling. The cult uses that in a way to isolate people, to maintain power. They might even separate families, you write. Yeah, the 12 Tribes has compounds all over the United States and actually all over the world. And they frequently move members between the compounds. The headquarters is in North Carolina, and they will give out edicts of saying this person should move to this place or that place. It's designed, ex-member said it was designed to limit members' connections to their communities that they live in outside of the cult, and also just another mechanism for control. If a ex-member wanted to leave and had a wife and kids and leadership of the cult got wind of that, the member would likely be separated from their family. Um, The kids and the mom may be sent to one compound and the dad sent to another in an effort to prevent the family from leaving the group. Did 12 tribes talk to you at all, the current leaders or frankly, current members? 
Yeah, I did um, have some brief conversations with 12 tribes leadership. The elders and leaders that I spoke to didn't want to speak extensively. They have said that they've had bad experiences with media coverage in the past and so weren't particularly enthused about talking with me about it. But the ones that I, the people that I did have conversations with um, defended the group and said that they just try to do good and that the allegations of abuse are false. The 12 Tribes has over the years prided itself on being open to visitors. Many um, reporters have spent time in, with the group or gone to dinner with them or visited uh, the compounds. I asked to do that uh, with the Boulder group and was told that, that it was not a good time and they didn't want to allow me to come out and join them. When you read through the some 400 pages of literature, did you walk away with a worldview? Like, are, are they trying to create a utopia? What What is their mission on Earth? That's a very complicated question. <laughs> because their theology, if you will, is complex and sometimes contradictory. But they're essentially believed that they are God's chosen people, that they're separate from the world, and cultivating a special community to prepare for future acts of God. And you said that the founder died recently? He did, yeah. Eugene Spriggs, he passed. And there was some discussion at the time of whether the group would dissolve, but it appears that his wife, who's long been one of the leaders, has now kind of taken the reins of leadership entirely and is going to hold everyone together. Before we go, let's talk about the third part of the series, describing Andre Shepard trying to pull his daughter out of 12 tribes. What led him to want to get his daughter out? Yeah, so Andre is a Black man who married a white woman, and they had a daughter. And then after that, his marriage ended, and his ex-wife took their daughter and joined the 12 tribes. He at first didn't know too much about the group, but as he learned more, he found out about their extremely racist theology, which essentially says that Black people were meant to be slaves and any troubles that the Black community has now is because they're not slaves, which is obviously very racist. Uh, and he became concerned about that, um, and in particular because the members of the 12 tribes were calling his daughter a particular name that referred only to her race. And he attempted to get full custody a couple of years ago, but the 12 tribe members came into court and argued that they weren't racist. And a judge agreed with them and allowed the daughter to stay with the 12 tribes for about two thirds of the time and with her dad for about a third of the time. Does Andre have some evidence that his daughter is in danger, that she's threatened in some way? Yeah, it's kind of tricky to know um, because, as he will say, like she's adjusted to living with the 12 tribes. She wears their very conservative clothing when she's there and, and follows their rules and then, you know, goes to her dad's house and plays with toys. But he has noticed that she has some marks she has had in the past and marks on her body. At one point, she said she was up working on a roof and was injured. And she has a pretty large mark on her from that. So I think... That was part of his concern. And then his ex-wife was recently told to move out of state. 
um, by 12 tribes leadership. So he had been for some time out of touch with them. And that was in violation of a court order. What questions do you still have about 12 tribes that you'd like answered? Well, I think that the 12 tribes businesses are obviously in violation of state law by not paying the minimum wage. And I would be curious if there would be any consequences for them on that front. And also, I think there's the outstanding question of whether the fire actually, the Marshall Fire actually did start on their property or somewhere else. And uh, I think I'd also be curious to know um, kind of what the future of this group is going to be. They've The group has been shrinking uh, for the last probably 15 years as people born into the group have grown up and left. So um, I'd be very curious to know if they're going to make it another 50 years or if the 12 tribes is coming to an end. Thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us. Thanks for having me. Shelley Bradbury is courts reporter at the Denver Post. She wrote a series on a cult with a campus in Boulder County called 12 Tribes. Investigators were looking into whether the Marshall Fire might have started on their campus last December. Again, a cause has still not been identified. Still to come, a potential solution to the state's housing crunch. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. There's a role for everyone at Colorado Public Radio. You're already a listener. You may even be a member. Have you ever wondered about working at CPR? A nonprofit with a history that starts in 1970, CPR's news and music radio signals today reach over 90% of Colorado's population, while podcasts and online content reach people across the nation. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make this happen, and your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. Learn more at CPR.org careers. There are too few homes in Colorado for the number of people who want them. State lawmakers think new forms of home building could help, and they're ready to put tens of millions of dollars behind the idea. CPR's Andrew Kenny introduces us to a business that stands to benefit. This sounds like it could be any construction site, with the constant punch of nail guns and the whine of power saws. But we're not on a construction site. This isn't a half-built subdivision or an apartment block. It's a housing factory in North Denver. Yeah, so um, our flow in here basically runs north to south. That's Jeff Hoffenbeck, the 33-year-old CEO of Simple Homes, a startup. We're standing on the factory floor in a century-old brick building, and the place is buzzing as a dozen guys in orange shirts work along an assembly line. We're here in Denver building using a panelized building system. The crew here is building walls or panels that'll get moved to a location and put together. Hoffenbeck says that using these pre-built panels, construction workers can frame a house in just a day, much faster than if they had to build everything on site. We build uh, panels for everything, everything from, you know, small 400 square foot cottages to 40, 50, 60,000 square foot multifamily apartment buildings. Hoffenbeck walks us through a process that is strikingly simple, but kind of revolutionary. On the north end of the floor, a semi-automated saw is cutting up piles of lumber based on detailed digital plans. It says, all right, here's all the cuts I need to make. And then it knows what material we have in stock and then optimizes that material for the least amount of waste. Each 2x4 is printed with instructions about how it should fit together to make a wooden wall frame. So each part has a unique ID. 
and this is really what they build off. The teams of workers nail the frames together with rapid-fire bursts and roll them down the assembly line. Some will be covered in sheathing or have windows installed. Today, though, they're working on interior walls. When they're finished, a crane mounted overhead picks up each panel and slides it over to a custom-built trailer. Yeah, we you know, ship panels mostly here in, in the Denver metro area, though we are doing work up in the mountains as well, um, but really entirely within Colorado. So you know, everything we, sh- we build out of this factory stays within Colorado. In the factory's office, where the designers and the architects and programmers work, there's a picture of the first panelized house that the founders of Simple Homes built and put together themselves just a few years ago. You know, two years ago, this was just kind of a dream, and we were just starting to build our first couple houses, and it's amazing today to have, you know, 50 people working for us and be building tens of thousands of square feet every single month. Major home builders have already started to embrace these pre-built panels, which can be used in a wide variety of projects. But what makes Simple Homes unusual is the efficiency of its factory setup, says Kimball Krangle, a developer who's not associated with the company. We've been following Jeff Hoffenbach for quite some time, um, as he was just creating Simple Homes, and he's got a pretty amazing product. She describes Simple Homes as an incremental improvement on home building, an industry that really needs to ramp up in Colorado if it's going to meet demand. It's not always cheaper than traditional construction, but it requires much less time and labor on the site, and that's appealing for home builders who are dealing with labor shortages and tight schedules. And when we're building in far reaches of the state, you can't often find the same crews that you can if you're in Metro Denver. And so the industry has had to become more efficient. State lawmakers also see potential in this approach. They're planning to dedicate about $40 million in federal money to provide grants and loans for innovative construction businesses. That could include panelization companies like Simple Homes, but also other approaches like new factories in Buena Vista and Pueblo that use a modular style that can put out nearly complete buildings rather than just walls. The goal, says Representative Kyle Mollica, is to increase the supply of new homes and encourage home ownership. I hope that it's like a jumpstart to the industry and that it really gets uh, things going and it gives us a, a different opportunity and that we view housing a little differently, to be honest with you. Hoffenbeck walks out the roll-up doors of the factory and into the windswept yard where dozens of those panels are awaiting shipment. This is for a eight-unit townhome project. Uh, that is for a single-family home that's going out in Aurora. And then that stack back there is for a 50,000-square-foot apartment building uh, in Uptown. Simple Homes has taken about $5 million in investment, and it's recently turned profitable. Hoffenbeck says that in Colorado's tumultuous market, they've got plenty of room to build. I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News. Well, we are working on a special Colorado Matters about housing prices, and we'd like to hear from you. Have you bought recently? Are you trying? Have you given up on homeownership? Share your story. Same for folks who are on the seller's side. What's playing into the price, the decision to move, and where are you headed? On the CPR app, hit the menu button, then tell CPR to record a memo, or leave a message for us, 303 871-9191, extension 4480. So that's our main number. Here it is once again, 303-871-9191, extension 4480. We'd like to hear about your housing struggles. All right, when we come back, an old family photo sparks a question for Colorado Wonders, and the answer is millions of years in the making. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
In the early years, Colorado's capital moved around the map a lot. During and after the Civil War, Colorado Territory's legislature, governor, and Supreme Court met intermittently in Colorado City, now Colorado Springs, then in Golden, then in what was called Denver City. After statehood, the Constitution called for the matter to be settled by a vote in 1881. Towns across the state resented the political, economic, and social dominance of Denver, and they made their pitch to the people. Salida trumpeted its virtues in newspapers. Canyon City held two conventions to coordinate its own anti-Denver movement. Del Norte stepped up. But in the end, more than 30,000 Coloradans voted for Denver, five times more than voted for the second-place contender, Pueblo. With thanks to historian Derek Everett, this is a Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. We take on mysteries and curiosities in Colorado Wonders. And this next question comes from Karen Mahalik, who lives in Elizabeth, east of Castle Rock. She notes she's a fourth-generation Coloradan. Oh, I've seen a couple of interesting photographs from back in the early 1900s that my family handed down about this place called Florissant. I've never been there, and I just am very curious on what is there and what it's all about. More specifically, she wants to know about the nearby national monument, Florissant Fossil Beds. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce took up her question. Hi, Dan. Hey, Ryan. Tell us first about these family photos Karen came across. Well, they're just about as as old-timey as any photo you could possibly imagine. There's no question about that. The one I saw has her great-uncle and some friends. They're standing on and around a a big petrified tree stump. You know, they're wearing bowler hats. They got Western-style three-piece suits, Sunday church dresses on. It's awesome. Okay, and that petrified stump is one of the things that sparked her question. So you indeed paid a visit to the fluorescent fossil beds National Monument. I didn't know this was a national monument. So thank you for that, Dan. You got it. So yeah, you're right. A few weeks back, I headed there and there's there was still a good amount of snow on the ground. I get to the parking lot. First, I encounter a woman named Kathy Zilverberg and she drove up for a little exercise. We have a little get together of friends every Friday and this was where we chose to hike at today. It's called the Sloss. Slow Ladies on the Hike is our hiking group. The slow ladies on the hike. Uh, Why did they decide on the monument? Well, because the trails here, they're relatively flat and level. There's no avalanche danger. And we knew it was a good place to park. So that kind of there in itself. And by good place to park, she means we're pretty much the only ones in the parking lot. The monument is basically deserted, except for a man named Jeff Wolin, the lead interpretive ranger at Flores and Fossil Beds. Let's get after this. Okay, so we're gonna and head to the visitor center. He takes me through the Monument Visitor Center, which has these detailed exhibits talking about the history of the place and all the prehistoric plants and critters that you can find around here. And it's great. But remember, Ryan, I'm here for Karen, our listener from Elizabeth. Indeed, our Colorado wanderer. Yes, that's right. And what she is interested in are the petrified stumps that she sees in those old family photos of hers. How were they made? When were they alive? And on the back of one of her pictures, it says the stump in the photo was supposed to be chopped in half and sent to the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Whatever happened to that? So to see the stumps, Ranger Wallen takes me right out behind the visitor center. 
there are these two very large green metal roofed shelters and they're covering up some of the biggest petrified tree stumps in the world. So we're looking at a petrified stump that's about 10 or 12 feet wide, about 10 feet tall, and it weighs about 100,000 pounds. I got to be honest, I have never been to the monument until today. Yeah. I absolutely did not expect to see a tree stump that is this big. Right. This thing is absolutely enormous. You feel like you could carve a hole and live inside the thing. Yeah, yeah, it looks like, I mean, you could fit like a car could fit inside. And maybe some of the listeners have been to the Redwoods in California and have seen these giant trees. Um, but it is surprising, Redwoods in Colorado, right? Those are supposed to be in California and Oregon. And the answer turns out to be is that if you were to look at Redwood fossils around the world, it turns out that redwood trees normally lived all around the northern hemisphere. Used to be tens of millions of years ago. That was normal. And so it looks like here at this time, the mean annual temperature was similar to modern day San Francisco. So it wasn't like crazy warm, but it was warmer. And it supported all these different kinds of things that today would live in other parts of the world. And then there was a massive climate change at the end of this time period. And worked its way into what we now have as a cool temper climate. When I look at just the absolute massive size of uh -huh. these stumps, and I imagine these giant trees growing hundreds of feet in the air, right. during the time, how thick would a forest like this be? How close together were trees of this size? Certainly it was a diverse forest. So it wasn't, it wasn't like only a stand of redwoods. There were all kinds of other trees, even just at this exhibit right in front of us is showing a maple leaf. Um, and there were elms and other kinds of trees. So it was a mixture. It was a mixed hardwood, warm temperate forest. And then it got hit by a volcano. So, well, indirectly. So we're gonna go walk over here and I'll tell you about that. Yeah, why don't we have these things all over the state? Why do we right. only see them here? So again, going back to that redwoods normally lived around the Northern hemisphere. So that's part of the reason. But then why were they preserved? Goes back to a time in Colorado when there was actually a fair amount of volcanic action. And about 18 miles to the Southwest of us, there was an area we call the Guffey Volcanic Complex. So some listeners might be familiar with, there's a little community called Guffey out there. And if you're out in Guffey and you look around, you'll see some mountains and some of those are the eroded guts of the volcano, but the, you can't go to Guffey today and see the volcano. It's since eroded. So it was there, it was an active volcano, what we call a stratovolcano, so very steep-sided, and it erupted with a lot of ash. And the ash probably covered the sides of the mountain, really thick layers of ash. And then there was a massive rain event, and it saturated the ash. It turned into mud, and then it rolled down because it was on the top of a mountain. So it came from 15 miles away or 18 miles away. And when it got here, it was still 15 feet thick. And they call these kinds of events a lahar. And so they, when you, sorry, yeah. when you say a massive rain event, right. how massive are we talking here? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. But it's, so it could have been a massive storm or it might've just been rain that happened for like four days in a row or something like that. Maybe and, not necessarily so much the intensity of the rain, right. but following the intensity of the explosion. Yeah, and it was just the amount of the ash and you had a certain amount of rain and it saturated it, turned into a, a mud flow, came from 15 miles away and it buried these trees up to about 15 feet in mud. 
and they died in place while they were still standing, many of them. And so then the top parts of them decayed, but the bottom part was still under the ground. And over time, water that was moving through the surrounding ground picked up minerals, mostly silica, and it seeped into the tree within the cells and even in between the cells, and it turned it into a solid rock. The reason of the height behind the stumps, if I'm hearing you correctly then, is because, very simply, that's how deep they were buried right. in the mud from this mudslide. That's exactly right. So people will come here and say, did it you know, get knocked off? Did something chop it down? What ha you know, but, but like you said, it was, it was because that's everything that got buried in the mud had a chance to become preserved. Anything that was outside of the mud was exposed to the elements and decayed. Decayed like any right. tree would normally. Yeah. Many of us, when we think about Colorado today, we don't think about it as being this incredibly volcanically volatile place today. Right. This was 34 million years ago when the volcanic eruption in Guffey took place. Within 5 or 10 million years of that time, there would have also been an eruption which is now part of the San Juan Mountains. Um, and it was actually one of the largest eruptions in the world by the, the amount of stuff that came out of it that they've calculated out. So yeah, uh, it is surprising. It is because of that volcanic activity of that time that we have the amount and diversity of fossils that we see here today at the fossil beds. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And actually the chance of something becoming a fossil is pretty rare. It takes just the right series of events to happen and the right kinds of scenarios. In this case, it was the volcano was the right thing. You had a volcano. It wasn't so close that it blew everything away when it erupted. And it wasn't so far away that it didn't reach it. It was just far away enough that the mud flow came and you know buried the trees. And another debris flow came from it and blocked a stream that backed up and made that lake. And so then you had a big giant lake here and then things were falling in the lake, you know, leaves and sticks and insects. And there were things in the lake like fish that died and went to the bottom. And then the volcano was erupting again over you know, thousands of years and more ash was coming in. It was just the right recipe to make fossils. This has been recognized as a special place now for a long time. At one point, the fossil beds was set to send a piece of one of these giant petrified stumps off to the 1893 World's Fair, but it, but it didn't work out as planned? What, what's the story behind that? Yeah, correct. So even in the late 1800s, there were tourists coming up here and, you know, Colorado Springs uh, had been set aside kind of as a tourist resort town. So now folks are coming up here and they're collecting fossils. And there was a family that owned land uh, from about a half a mile from where we're at right now. And there was a stump that they were called the Big Stump. And there was an idea like, hey, we could get more people out here if we saw it into pieces. And we're going to put it on a train and we're going to ship it out to the World's Fair in Chicago. They tried. They set up scaffolding around it. And they had those big giant saws where one person's on one side and one's on the other. But the thing is, is that's a wood saw. And this isn't wood anymore. You know, it's essentially a rock. So the saws got stuck. So then they broke them off. And it is true that if you walk out, we have a trail here called the Petrified Forest Loop, which is one of our main trails. It's got exhibits along the way. And right out at the big stump, you can still see the saw blades stuck in the tree. You can still see the saw blades in the tree. That's remarkable. 
Yeah. See, back in the early days of the fossil beds, or maybe let's say post-U.S. westward expansion anyway, that time period, the late 1800s, early 1900s, settlers were just brutal with the fossils here. They exposed many of the big redwood stumps out of the ground with just straight-up dynamite, which, unsurprisingly, damaged the stumps themselves quite a bit too. So Monument staff have been working on trying to hold them together ever since. I gather they have different techniques today, though. It, well, definitely. And, and what I thought was most surprising is that they are using those very different techniques because they absolutely have not found everything that's out here. There totally might be more enormous petrified stumps still buried. One time I was talking to a researcher who was doing that kind of research. That was the question we asked him is, are there more? And he said, my answer is, it was a forest, right? So, yes, there's more. Just last year, researchers started using a device called a magnetometer on the grounds here, which scans underground and can detect the stumps. You know, maybe someday if we have hundreds of graduate students and hundreds of magnetometers and hundreds of months, we could survey the whole land and we'll find more. But they did find some under the ground. So, yes, likely there's more still underground. It's still very much in an act of discovery. There are still big, massive potential finds out here. Yeah, and and that's one of the exciting things about being here is that it's an active science site. So we have, you know, our visitor center, which we walk through. About a third of that building is a science center. We have a full-time paleontologist, and we have a full-time museum person. And then we have lots of interns that come in every year, and we're working with scientists all over the world, actually. So this still is an ongoing science endeavor. It's exciting. You know, now if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, and you're imagining in your head, I'm going to go out there and just see people digging all over and dust, you know, not at all like that. The excavations take place very rarely, you know, it's once every five or 10 years or so, uh, we might do a big excavation. A strange thing happened during the pandemic out of a lack of options. Many people in Colorado began rediscovering the outdoors. One of the consequences of that is we have some of our most popular outdoor locations. The critique is that they may now be getting loved to death. I don't get the impression that that is the case here at the Fossil Beds. Certainly we're being loved, but I wouldn't say we're being loved to death. If you're an avid hiker, there's this whole other aspect of this park is it's a 6,000 acre section of land that's protected. And it's got about 15 miles of hiking trails. And so during the pandemic, the trails were still open. uh, For a long time, the visitor center and parking lot area was closed. But you could access the trails. And I remember getting some emails and even phone calls by people saying, thank you for being open. Because, you know, I was stuck in my house and I, I knew I could get out. And the trails actually aren't as heavily used as other places. I even had a few people comment, I knew that I wouldn't be in a crowded place, you can kind of get out there. You won't really see that many people. And a lot of that is this location is farther from population centers. It is a little bit out of the way. And that isolation did lead to another distinction that you all are celebrating now. Tell me about that. Yeah. So uh, like you mentioned, we're, we're about an hour away from Colorado Springs. And we actually have some mountains in between at the Rampart Range mountains are in between us and Colorado Springs. It turns out that that combination helps us have a very, very nice dark sky. 
Also, we have a couple of volunteers that live up in this area. Over a period of about two years, they worked on, I think it ends up being about a 60 or 90 page application. And we got designated as an international dark sky park. In the park service, there, you know, there's 423 sites. And I think there's about 40 or so sites that have that designation. When people think about the National Park Service in Colorado, the big ticket things, you know, it's the sand dudes, it's Rocky Mountain National yeah. Park. But how do you feel being the head ranger at one of the park services smaller and quieter locations? Oh, I, I love, I've been here for 20 years. So that if that says something, I love this place. And I love it because, I mean, on a daily basis, I can walk out right where we're standing and I can just watch people come out the back door and then look at a petrified stump and you could just see it on their face, you know, and they're just instantly in this cool place of awe and wonder. And, you know, that's just the beginning. There's all kinds of amazing stories here history that goes back 10,000 years to Native Americans. And, and one thing I didn't mention, the story of how this became a park was basically it was a group of citizens and scientists in the 1960s, activists. The area was going to be developed. It was going to become a housing development. And they fought a battle to help protect it. And there was a bill going through Congress and they saved it at the last minute. And so I kind of feel like they passed on the torch. And, you know, I feel like I'm one of the, the torch bearers. So I'm never, and there's always something new, like some new story will come up or, or a new thing will be found. You know, like last year they found, I think a, they found a stump with that magnetometer. So there's something always happening and it's exciting. It's a cool story. Jeff Wolin, lead interpretive ranger at Fluorescent Fossil Beds National Monument. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for having us and come out and visit. It's your park. Okay. Well, Karen Mahalik of Elizabeth, hopefully CPR has answered your question about the Fluorescent Fossil Beds National Monument. Yeah, Ryan, actually, funny thing about that, after contacting us through Colorado Wonders, Karen decided to check out the fossil beds for the first time herself, too. And I would also encourage anyone else who hasn't seen the uh, Fluorescent Fossil Beds to go out there. It's quite worth the while to go because it's pretty and it's just very awe-inspiring to see this gigantic petrified tree stump. I've never seen a tree stump that big, honestly, living or dead. (laughs) And neither had I, Ryan. If you can take away one thing from this conversation, these are truly, truly massive tree stumps. Dan, thanks for this. (laughs) You got it, Ryan. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter, Dan Boyce. Get it? At first I was afraid, I was petrified. If you have a question about our state, reach out through cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. And Colorado Matters will be right back on CPR News. Colorado skiers and boarders are saying goodbye to winter in the traditional way. By face planting into a frosty pond. The objective of pond skimming is to skim all the way across the surface. But really, it's about... Just that like crowd enthusiasm, everybody celebrating the end of a great year. Story and lots of pictures at CPR.org. <laughs> 
Colorado is set to add a new fee to the price of gasoline this summer. But the public can weigh in on a proposal to delay that increase by six months. Here's CPR's Benta Berkland. On a recent Monday morning, Lindy Allen stopped by a gas station in Lakewood. Yeah, I just filled my tank full of gas. It was over $75. Allen says that's about $20 higher than it usually costs to fill up her SUV. And she thinks people need some economic relief. We haven't seen these prices in my lifetime, so I don't support any type of tax increase. Last year, Democratic lawmakers passed a number of fee increases to put $5 billion into infrastructure projects. Fees on delivery services and ride-sharing apps like Amazon, Grubhub, and Uber, and higher registration fees for electric vehicles. And there's also the gas fee, which starts in July at $0.02 a gallon. Democratic Senate President Steve Fenberg says he supports this new bill to delay the gas fee. Given the economy and what's going on in the world right now, in some ways it's a no-brainer. The state plans to make up the lost revenue with one-time federal COVID relief money. Governor Jared Polis says the goal is to not delay any projects. The fee we pay on gas over time needs to keep up with inflation. But now is simply not the time. When families are struggling with $3.80 a gallon costs, rent's gone up, groceries cost more. Conservative groups are suing over the fee increases. They say it should be up to voters. Republican Senator Dennis Heisey has mixed feelings about this latest bill. He wants a longer-term fix, not just a pause. Let's just go ahead and reduce all of those fees permanently as opposed to just for a a six-month temporary period. Looks an awful lot like an election year ploy to me. For Coloradans like Alan, she says any relief from taxes or fees is a good thing because every little bit helps. I would be more on board if we can get our gas prices under control. But at this point, you know, we just continue to see inflation and gas prices rising. It's not the time. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. This week, we are sharing your Red Rocks regrets, concerts at the famous amphitheater you missed but wished you hadn't. On Twitter, BK Wilmore harkens back to a day in June 1983. He was on his way to Red Rocks, but the weather was turning. Quote, I just knew the concert would be rained out, so I turned around and went back to the dorms to study. Yep, I missed under a blood red sky, end quote. That concert and film thrust both U2 and Red Rocks into the national consciousness. Rolling Stone calls it a moment that changed rock and roll. says he was offered a ticket to the show and didn't attend. But Twitter user Kalensky did go, and she'd figured she'd regret it because of the weather. Alas, she writes, I did not regret it. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, I 
thing is, not even the concert promoter thought the show would move forward. The late Barry Fay, speaking with me in 2008, said he was landing in Denver the day of the U2 show. As we were flying and descending through the clouds, it looks like it's snowing. And I said, can't be. Can't be snowing. No one's called me. Everything, you know, because the city at Red Rocks used to give you another place to play. It was in clement weather. So as we land, it's, it's sleet and rain, and I run to the phone. And I call the production department at Red Rock and say, where has the concert been moved to? And they said, well, it hasn't been moved. I said, well, what do you mean it hasn't been moved? you see the weather out? They said, we weren't allowed to call you. I said, you weren't allowed to by who? I said, you work for me. He said, well, this is – and then Paul McGinnis comes on the phone, uh, manager of U2, and he says, Barry, it was me who told them not to call you because I knew you'd try and move it. And we have our life savings invested in this, and we have to play. If one person comes or everybody comes, we still have to play the concert. So Bono then gets on the phone, and he says, Barry, what we'll do is I'll get on the air. I said, are you crazy? He said, no, listen to me. He says, I'll tell everybody that if they don't want to come tonight, I'll do a free concert tomorrow night in Boulder. And they can come tonight and tomorrow. They don't have to come tonight, or they can just come tomorrow, whatever. So I say, and then he was as good as work. <laughs> called all the radio stations and made the announcement. And I went up to Red Rocks, and when I got there, it was in a cloud. I mean, you couldn't see a cloud because you were in the cloud. It was nasty. It was cold. It was raining. And uh, so much was wrong, but it made the concert. How, how did what was wrong make the concert? Well, because it, had it been like a nice 80-degree June day, it would have been a nice concert. But with everything, I mean, with the water all over the stage and the equipment draped in plastic and the, the fires on the rocks, which would have been inconsequential. There are these enormous torches. Right. But they, you're talking about two weeks away from the longest day of the year. So it wouldn't have been dark till quarter to nine. No, no one would have even noticed them with the concerts starting at 730. And I should say at this time, only 4,400 people came to the concert. Red Rocks was half full. Half less, a little less than half full. Now, if you talk to people today, there's a quarter million who are there. <laughs> <laughs> They'll tell you all about it. But what the, it was like Woodstock. All the things that were wrong went to make it as great as it was. Under a blood-red sky from U2, and we heard from the late concert promoter Barry Fay. For a lot of Coloradans, missing this 1983 show is a Red Rocks regret. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to my colleagues. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with thanks to you, too. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.